0: We'll give them just a moment, and then we are going to dig into the book of Mark. Now, like I said, it's been a month, almost a month and a half since we've been in Mark. We took a little bit of a side journey for the month of January to take a look at a a few other things, which means we probably need to do a little bit of review as we head back into Mark. In fact, I think some who have become regular haven't even been here during part of our our Mark study. So uh, those of you who were were here, it's time for pop quiz. Don't worry, I'm not going to grade the results, but who remembers some of the things that we've been looking at in the gospel of Mark? What you got? Okay, Okay, that Jesus has power over demons, and not just onesie-twosie, but the, the legion even. That he has dominion, or that he has power over the demons. Okay, that was one of the things. I know you've got more, but I, I want to give others an opportunity. But anybody else? Okay, that Jesus had power over the wind and the waves and the elements. Okay. Okay that he was a teacher all right now now was he a teacher like the scribes and the Pharisees he was he was different he was a teacher with authority and because of that what what tended to happen what gathered around him just constantly crowds. the crowds were no matter where he went there were there were groups and crowds that just kept following him and and following him everywhere to the point that they would it was it was almost crushing at times we saw a couple of different words that they they were so intense and so many of them it was it was crushing and he couldn't even uh, walk or interact because he was he was being jostled at times yes he healed people from a distance and the lady who had blood sores okay that, that he was able to heal even from a distance, and there was, there was one who just wanted to touch his garment, and, and through that, she was able to be healed as well. Okay. Now, now we've, we've looked at several of the individual events that happened. Let's, let's zoom out just a little bit. Who remembers the main area that all of these events was taking place? Where, where was it? He raised his hand. <laughs> it's okay. I'm just picking on you, Magnus. Good. What, what what he said? Yeah, he. You got the right answer. It was around the Sea of Galilee. So, uh, if you if you have a uh, map in the back of your Bible, take a look at it. Or if you just remember the picture, the Israel is is a fairly long country, and there's the the Jordan River runs down the 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 side, and there is the uh, Mediterranean. On, I always have to face the wrong direction. Mediterranean over here, the Dead Sea down here, the Sea of Galilee up here, which means he's in the northern portion of Israel. Jerusalem is down south, and in between is an area called Samaria. And there's a lot of history, there's a lot of things going on with all of that, but um, yeah, thank you, Mark. They are in the northern portion around the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so that, that was the main area. What was his main focus? As we've been going through this, does anybody remember one of the verses fairly early on that, that talks about what Jesus was doing? What was his focus? Because he, he wasn't there to cast out demons or to heal people or to walk on water or calm seas. He was there for something else. He had a different, different purpose or a different focus. Does anybody? Okay. Okay. He did come to seek and save that which was lost. He hasn't said that one yet in this. He's introducing the kingdom of God. Okay. Chapter 1, verse 15, the main focus of his ministry, it says, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And gospel, we we looked at, merely means the good news. And so Jesus is coming to give this good news and that good news is the kingdom of God is at hand. Now they, they as the, the Jews, would have recognized that phrase as being very, very significant. This isn't just, you know, some regular announcement of, of the local news. This is a big deal because they've been looking for this ever since God made some of his promises all the way back in the Old Testament. And they're looking forward to the coming king the Messiah, the promised one that throughout the, the prophets of the Old Testament was pointing to. And Jesus is coming and saying, hey, the kingdom of God, all the fulfillment of those promises, all of that is at hand. It's near. It's, it's time. Wake up. Pay attention. Repent and believe the gospel. So he, he begins doing those things. Now, there's, there's one main question that I asked over and over and over again as we went through the first seven chapters of Mark. And that question is what Mark is answering. And these, these various activities and events and things that we've seen are all pointing back to that, the answer to that question. Does anybody remember what the question is in the Gospel of Mark? Who is Jesus? And that's really what, what we've been looking at. Um, Up to this point, we have seen him traveling around primarily in the northern part of Israel. Now, that doesn't mean that during all of this time he never left that region, but that's what Mark has recorded for us, and that's the main focus. He's been in the northern part of Israel, um, mostly centered in a a city called Capernaum in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. But he's made a few trips to other places that have been talked about as well, In Like I said, in chapter 1, verse 15, we saw the main focus of his ministry is dealing with announcing this good news about the kingdom, uh, the kingdom of God that it is at hand. He then called some disciples. Uh, he, he ended up calling 12 of them specifically. And as we went through, we saw him send them out to do certain things. And he's interacted with them and he's been teaching them and training them Um, in how they were to operate within this this idea of the kingdom of God. Um, We also saw him displaying his authority in a variety of ways. Many of the ones that you mentioned, his authority over sickness, um, both near and far, his authority over demons, both individual and large groups, um, his authority over the wind and the waves, and even his authority over the traditions of men, and his ability to teach, as was one of the first ones that was mentioned, that he taught as one having authority. Uh, early on in the book, we also saw five interactions between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. And during those interactions, we saw they started off, the first of those five was, was kind of a reasonable question. Who has uh, authority over sin? Who can forgive sin? Well, only God, right? Only God has that authority. Only God has that power. And, and so the Pharisees, they asked a reasonable question. Jesus had said, your sins are forgiven. And they asked, well, who has that ability? Well, only God. Now, like I said, we're answering one major question in the, the book of Mark. Who is Jesus? Jesus. And so, through this series of five interactions, we saw that they started off with a reasonable question. They didn't like the answer, and it kind of got worse and worse and worse until finally in chapter 3, by by verse 6 of chapter 3, they were seeking a way to kill Jesus. They wanted to destroy him, and that word for destroy there is to kill him. It wasn't just they wanted to embarrass him or run him out of town or make him look bad. They wanted to kill him. They were ready to be completely done with Jesus. Well, after that, we saw several of his teachings. Now, Mark, the the gospel of Mark does not focus as much on what Jesus said as what he did But chapter 4 really dealt with a lot of his parables, and it, it summarizes them. It doesn't list out all of them, and it doesn't give us all of the details that are recorded in some of the other Gospels, but it does give us a few examples of his teachings. But like I said, Mark is more active and if you've, if you happen to have gone back and read through, which if you haven 't I would encourage you to read through the whole thing, you you get the idea that Mark is very fast paced and wants to keep the the story keep the account moving along and so there 's a lot of, of a word um, immediately this happened, and immediately this happened and immediately this happened and then and he, he just tells it in such a way that it 's It's almost like live action right as it's going on. It's a very exciting um, book of the Bible that just really focuses on the actions and the activities of Jesus. Well, at this point, we are all the way to chapter 8. And we are basically getting to the midpoint of the Gospel of Mark. At this point, he has just finished a circuit um, that took him from the main area that he was going to over to the Mediterranean Sea, and then north to uh, a city called Tyre, across through Sidon, and then back down the east, the, to the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee to a region called um, the Decapolis. And that, that word may, simply means 10 cities. And it's an area to the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. Main thing to be aware of with that is it was a Gentile area. That was not the Jewish Area and region that was the Gentile area and region, and we just saw um, in the at the end of chapter seven several interactions with Gentiles, and some of those worked out really well, and some were kind of surprising. Um, a few of them kind of made you scratch your head, like, wait a minute, why is he using this idea of of dogs? I mean, that's that's not very nice. That it seems strange, and yet through that we saw that. That Jesus was actually giving this this information, giving this message to the Gentiles as well, not just to the Jews. In the next, in the upcoming uh, chapters 8, 9, and 10, we're going to see him start to move from the north part of Israel down into the southern part. And he's going to make his way to Jerusalem. And as he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to begin to again have some of those interactions with the Pharisees and some of the challenges that come with that. And ultimately, once he's in Jerusalem, the whole focus is going to be pointing towards him heading for the cross. And so we are, like I said, we are about halfway through the gospel. We are about to transition away from his time in Galilee and moving towards Jerusalem. And those, those kind of make up the major portions of the gospel of Mark. Um, his ministry in the north, and then here in a little bit, his ministry in the south. And these three chapters in the middle are that transition as he travels down. We're going to be picking it up in um, chapter 8, chapter 8. But I want, to, I want you to keep in mind the fact that he is in a Gentile region. He's not in the Jewish area. And this is, this is very significant because he was dealing with the Gentile people. He, he started off primarily focused on the Jews. But back in chapter 6, he had been rejected. He had been um, basically run out of his hometown. They didn't really want him around, and so he, he turned his attention outward. Now, that's not to say that he rejected the Jews or that he quit dealing with the Jews. Uh, even in the, the, last, the end of the last chapter, he talks about, hey, I came first and foremost for the Jews. Those are the children of God, and that's who's supposed to be receiving this, this meal first. And there was a Syrophoenician woman who came along and said, yeah, but the, the dogs get the scraps, right? And, and he healed that woman's daughter because of her faith uh, connected with that. Well, at this point, he has now traveled from that area. And picking it up in verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, In those days. Now, those days are when he was traveling around through that area. So he's in Decapolis, he's still in this uh, area of the Gentiles. In those days. When there was, again, a large crowd, this is a normal thing. It happens over and over and over again. Everywhere that Jesus goes, the crowds follow him. They come together. And oftentimes, when we see that, it's because of <clears throat> his healing. And they're, they're wanting the miracles. They're wanting something physical. And yet, as he does that, he is constantly teaching as well. Um, he is he is spreading that message, that gospel, the good news of the kingdom. Now, there's a situation. There's a bit of a, a bit of a problem. They don't have any food. And and to compound that, we find out in verse two that it has been three days. This this large crowd has followed him, has gathered together, and it's been three days. I don't know about you, but when I read through, sometimes I, I read through scripture really, really fast, and, and I don't necessarily process it and, and think about it. But the question came up to me why? Why were they there for three days? What could have brought them to hang out in this area with no food for three days? Do what? His teachings. They valued it, they had enthusiasm for who he was. The Gentiles in this, this area where in the last section we, we called it the dogs, yet here they want to be with Jesus. They value him. They, they understand that, that there is something about him that they need, that they want. And so, so even though they have been three days without food, they don't want to leave yet. Well, what is Jesus' response then? Verse two, I feel compassion. Exactly. Did did you happen to look up compassion? I'm guessing you did. What what is it? What is it referring to? Move from the with, uh, concern. Yeah, move moved in the bowels. Do you ever do you ever get worried about something? And and I'm not saying that Jesus is worried. Don't don't get me wrong. I mean he he's in charge. He's in control. And yet it's that feeling that that inward idea of being moved. To the point that it's you—you you feel it. It's not just he—he he noticed and thought about it. and was like, okay, you know, yeah, they've—they've they've been here a while. Let's feed them. But he was moved with compassion. He cared, and and so we see this crowd, this large group, and and up here it only says a large crowd. Later we're going to find out about four thousand people. He sees this large crowd. And he's been teaching them. And they want to know who he is. And they want his teaching. They probably also want his healing and, and the miracles and stuff. But they care enough to be there. And I think part of the reason that they care is because he cares about them. He cares for them. And he's moved with compassion. And so he calls his disciples together. And he asks them a question. And, and he, he begins to, to interact with them about this. He says, I I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away, hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. Some of them have come a great distance. Now, we don't know exactly how far they're from or, or, you know, the whole situation and everything that's going on. We don't even know exactly where he's at, other than it's going to be described as a desolate place out in the wilderness. And and his disciples here were, in a moment we'll see they recognize there's no food around. And so Jesus presents this issue, this problem, and he gives it to his disciples. He says they've they've been here for 3 days, there is no food. Now, in my mind, one of the one of the things that that pops to my head because I've read through this, and I know the backstory, and I know what's going on, is why do you think that he is talking to his disciples? Why do you think that he he brings this to them? Has there been a a similar situation that already happened? Okay, he he wants their faith. He wants them to respond to this. What happened in the previous example? There was a feeding of 5,000. There was a feeding of 5,000. And and during that Jesus had said, "You feed them," and and they didn't exactly get it, and they didn't know what was going on, and so at this point he's he's giving them yet another opportunity in which they can do something, and and yet what is their response? Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here? Where did Jesus find the bread in the feeding of the five thousand? He made it, right? It, from, from five loaves and two fishes, he, he was able to feed the 5,000 men plus women and children. And, and in that episode, it specifies that there were 5,000 men. So we're talking a huge crowd then. At this point, it doesn't specify that. It just, it'll end up telling us 4,000. That's still a huge crowd. That's still a large number. And so he asks them, or he, he, he lets them know the problem that he doesn't tell them to do anything, he doesn't ask them to do anything, he just, he informs them of the situation with kind of an implied, so what, what can we do? What should we do? Well, it's really easy to start blaming the, the disciples and being like, hey, disciples, why didn't you get it? You should have known this by now. I mean, he's already been able to handle this. He's given you guys abilities. You'll you'll recall that he had actually sent the disciples out at one point with no provisions, told them, don't take a money bag, don't take an extra pair of sandals, don't take anything with you, just trust me, go out and spread the message. And they go out and, and... amazing things happened during that. So, you would expect that they would know what's going on, that, that they would understand this, that they would see it, and they'd be like, oh, well, this is a great opportunity to... And yet, they don't. Now, before we are too hard and rough on them, I I, I had a bit of a gut check here. How many times have you seen God do something? Have you seen God at work? And And... Yet, when the next problem comes up, the next issue or the next challenge arises, you're kind of like a deer in the headlights. Like, oh no, what am I going to do? How am I going to handle? And yet God's already done over and over and over again. And and so I don't think we should be too hard on the disciples because don't we do the exact same thing sometimes? But they do identify um, the very accurate understanding of what's going on. They, they assess the problem correctly. Uh, where will anyone be able to find enough bread in this desolate place to satisfy these people? It's a good question. That, that gives us the setting. We know that they're out in a, a wilderness area. It's not going to be easy to find enough food. Now, let's compare it with the last time. Do you, re, do you remember what their response was to the 5,000? What did they want Jesus to do then? okay they, they were thinking about money, but what did what did they ask Jesus to do send to send them away? I think we get a glimpse of a little bit of an improvement here because that 's not their answer. They just identify the problem. How is anyone going to get enough food this This seems to be an issue, and so back with the with the five thousand, um, they had actually gone to Jesus and asked him to send the crowds away, and if you recall, that was after just one day. It was getting late in the evening, and they wanted to send the crowds away so they could go get food, and the the disciples could rest. Here, it's been three days. So before we're too hard on on the disciples, we do need to recognize this appears to be a little bit better than some of their previous interactions, but I don't think they still get it at this point. Were you raising your hand, or... Okay, what well, they in the Decapolis area? Yes. Where there's ten cities around them? Yes. But it's but it's a, still l- a desolate place. Decapolis is a large area to the southeast. There's not a lot there, and it is a desolate area. And so we're not sure exactly where it's not that there were ten cities real close by, but the ten major cities of this region, type of an idea. And so, yeah, what, what are they going to do? How are they going to deal with this? Well, like I said, I don't think we, we should be too hard on them, because at this point, they, they aren't the ones who initiated this. They didn't come up and say, hey, Jesus, get rid of these people so that we can go get something to eat. They've also waited these three days, and they are all together here without the food, And though they don't get it quite right, there's definitely an improvement. That's the the point that I'm making there. Um, They recognize that it is worth it for them to be around there. But where is anybody going to be able to get enough food? I mean, to feed 4,000 is going to take a lot of food. What do what? Or money? Well, money—if they could even find somewhere to to purchase it—but it seems here that it says, "Where would anyone be able to?" So it seems like there's not even a market that they could go purchase it from if they had enough money. But yeah, they—they're going to need a lot. They're going to need quite a bit to be able to feed these five thousand. Sorry, feed these four thousand. And so, uh, verse five, he was asking them. Now, uh, I. I love it when people call me up and ask questions as they're pre-studying, because we we let you know what the passage is going to be, and then I prep that study guide for you to kind of look at. And I got a call this week, because that's a weird phrasing, um, and if you dig into it, it, it seems odd. He was asking them like it's a continuous idea. So did he ask them over and over and over again, or did he ask each one of them? And I, I kind of land on that second one, that he, he kind of goes around to his disciples and asks them, you know, how much, how much bread do you have? How, much, how many loaves do you have? And the, the word loaves and bread, it's the same one, so how much do you have? How much is there? And, and their response is seven. They have seven loaves of bread. Now, when you think of a loaf of bread, what comes to your mind? What, what do you picture? You, you picture sourdough, you picture like a sliced bread, um, sandwich bread maybe, you know, like sliced, something of that nature. That's, that's what we tend to think of. Do what? I'm sure there's a more like that in small. You know? So what what they have for bread is actually a little bit different, and and it's it's kind of fun. Just complete side note, sometimes uh, pull up every iteration of bread in the Bible and see what kind of different things come up, because it's, it's really interesting. There are three different forms of bread in one verse in the Old Testament, and there are a lot of different things talked about. That said, this is probably more like a non bread, or a pita bread, or like a, a tortilla type of an idea. So it's, it's not the sliced white bread that we have today. This is something that would be more of that style, more of that ilk. Um, a, a round, it could be made in any, any size, probably very uh, random in size, but largely it would be a, a round-ish loaf it would be a, how many of you have had pita or naan or something of that nature? A, a flatbread of some kind. Okay, it's something like that. This would have been enough, maybe, for the disciples to have eaten off of. At most, the seven loaves could have fed the disciples. Not enough for a crowd of 4,000. Okay, and, and we're not even sure exactly how big these loaves are. They, they could have been, you know, fairly good size or maybe smaller, depending on, yes, ma'am. Yes, it, it was probably a leavened bread. Um, your, your normal non-bread is leavened. And so it would, it would probably have been just a regular loaf of bread, the type that they would normally use. And, and that was a normal thing. It wasn't, most likely, it wasn't the unleavened bread that they would have for um, Passover, for certain celebrations. Um, this would just be traveling bread, the normal thing that they would have. And so they, um, they had seven of these loaves, but that's not going to be enough to feed very many. Maybe, maybe a dozen people um, they could have, but probably not everyone. <clears throat> and so they do have a little bit, but not much. Jesus does not seem to balk at that at all. I mean, you, you don't see him like, oh man, only seven? No, his... his Immediate response then in verse 6 is he directed the people to sit down on the ground. Now, that's another of those interesting words. If you, if you look it up in vines, there are actually 13 different words that are used for sit down. Uh, which is interesting. And they they have, I mean, that's typical for Greek. Um, They have different nuances about what it means and what's going on and what type of sitting, whether it's, you know, stay in one location or sit down or relax or dwell. Or in this case, the word that's used is the same one that's used for go be seated at a banquet. It's the idea is to recline at a banquet. Um, and in their culture, in their, their style, they didn't sit in chairs at a table like we're used to. They would actually have kind of cushions and, and somewhat lay down kind of in a reclining position. And that's where they would eat a banquet. And so it, he's, he's telling them to prepare for a meal. Now, surely the, the crowd, the people knew there's not enough food around so why are we sitting down for a banquet? What's, what's going on there? Well, he then takes the seven loaves and he gives thanks for them and he starts to break them. Now, obviously, if you know anything about bread, there are all kinds of different types of bread and styles and some are harder and crustier than others and some tear really easy. The idea here is simply that he, he tears the bread. He breaks it apart. This is a, a normal thing that they would do with those, those loaves of pita. You just rip it apart and and even today, they continue to have certain um, meals and, and styles of banquets in which you, you would tear off a chunk of bread and be able to dip it in a whatever and eat it. So he starts to tear it, and he starts to distribute it. And it, it says he, he started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. So he, he takes one of these and he tears it, and he gives it to his disciples to distribute, and he tears it, and he and distributes it, and distributes it, and di- distributes it, and distributes it and distributes it and distributes it and and he keeps doing that. And then almost as a afterthought, verse 7 says they had they also had a few small fish. We're not told how many, we're not told how small, just like I said almost as an afterthought, oh by the way, we have some fish too. And after he blessed that, he again ordered it to be distributed. And so that was also distributed out. Now, 4,000 people a few small fish, seven loaves of bread. How many is that going to feed? Well, I, I already said, you know, that ought to be about maybe the disciples, perhaps a few more, could get a little bite, and, and at least they wouldn't starve to death. What does it say? They ate and were satisfied. Now, that, that yeah. Um, It doesn't indicate whether it is or isn't. Um, It could be that it was 4,000 men plus some. Because um, chapter 6 does tell us that it was 5,000 men plus women and children, I'm a little more doubtful that this is 4,000 plus extras. It's probably just a a general number of about 4,000. But either way, this is a large crowd that's fed off of something that Shouldn't be able to stretch that far. And the word here, that it says they were satisfied. This idea of satisfied isn't just that they, they had a bite and they weren't going to starve. No, they were, they were full. They got a full meal. They were, um, it, it's the same word that's used when you're feeding cows to fatten them up. To, to get them you know, ready for butcher type of an idea, that, that it's not you just give them a little bit of food for sustenance, but you're feeding them enough to grow, to develop, to, to be fully grown cows type of an idea. And so here, it's, it's that same idea that they were satisfied, meaning they got a full belly. They got enough to, to not want anymore. But not only that, what does it say in the rest of verse 8? Verse 8. They picked up the leftovers, just, just a few crumbs laying around, right? No, they picked up seven baskets full. Now, interestingly enough, the, the word for baskets here is a different one than was used back in chapter 6 with the feeding of the 5,000. If you'll recall with that one, they, they had baskets, but the word for baskets there was, a, and Bernie, you helped me figure out what, what is it called? The basket with the food that, that, like someone, a poke bag, is that what you call it? Haversack, like a haversack. Think with with that one, with the 5,000, think a small bag that they would carry around like a lunchbox or a haversack, or, you know, it it would have a meal or two, like that day's food. It's a smaller type of a, a vessel. This one here is a different word and it means a larger basket. So we're talking like a laundry basket, or this, this is also the same word that's used when Paul is let down um, beside the, the city walls. So it was big enough for a person to be in. Now, it, it is a fairly generic type term, so it's, it's not specifying exactly how big of a basket, but it's not a small basket. It's a large basket from seven loaves, and a few small fish, 4,000 people, give or take, were fed, were fully satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets of the remaining pieces. Now, if, if we were to take some time and go through the comparisons between uh, the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark 6 and the feeding of the 4,000 here in Mark 8, we would see a lot of similarities. We would see that there was a large crowd, that Jesus was moved with compassion, that he feeds the group with a small amount of bread and a small amount of fish, and they pick up lots of extras. And that has caused some people to say, oh, well, Mark's just repeating the same story again, and it's, it's not two, other, two events. Except you start digging in, and you find a bunch of differences as well the location is different the reason that Jesus has compassion is different back in chapter 6 he looks at the crowd and they are like sheep without a shepherd here they've followed him around for 3 days back in the the other one the duration was different they it was late on the same day whereas here they've been out there for 3 days with no food also who initiates it in the in the first example, the feeding of the 5,000, it's the disciples that go to Jesus and like, hey, get rid of these people, we're hungry, they're going to be hungry, be done. Here, Jesus is the one who initiates it, and, and obviously their response then is a little bit different. The, the description of the area is different. My, my point being, these are clearly two different events that took place so why would you record it twice? Why would you have these two, two different things? Well, I think one of, the, one of the big reasons is the first time was clearly in a Jewish area when Jesus was clearly dealing with the Jews. This one is in a Gentile area. So what would be emphasized with that idea? That, that now Jesus has gone to the Gentiles and that he is feeding them as well. Exactly. Jesus isn't just the Messiah for the Jews. He is the Savior of the whole world. The message that he is bringing is for everyone. In John, we find that, that Jesus is the bread of life. Well, he is feeding the Jews and the Gentiles. And so part of this, uh, this account is to let us know that Jesus is there for everyone not just for one group or one one section or, or things of that nature. So even though there are a lot of similarities, there's also a lot of differences. Another similarity that I wanted to point out is the response of the crowd. What what does it say is the response of the crowd? I'll give you a moment to hunt for it because you're not going to find it. It's not there. We're not told. Now, you would think that... that this group that's followed him for three days would just be overawed with the fact that he was able to feed them and the the whole crowd gets saved in one one fell swoop right there. We aren't told anything. We're not told what their what their response is. In fact, verse nine, it just says there were about four thousand there, and he sent them away. So he feeds them and and dismisses them. We're not told what their response is. We're not told anything about them. And so I think that one of the main things that we need to take away from this is that idea that the message is for everyone. The message is for all. The focus at this point is not the response, but simply the fact that Jesus is giving this same message to everyone. Well... Uh, he sends them away, and immediately he enters a boat with his disciples, and they come to a place to the district of Dalmanutha. And yes, I did have to look up how to pronounce that one, and I still can't pronounce it right. I practiced it several times to get it right, and I still can't say it right. Does anybody know where that is? Okay, if you, if you look it up, Magdala is the, the region or the area that's often pointed to, and where is that? Okay. Somewhere somewhere on the Sea of Galilee. Okay. Near Iberia? Okay. It's not an exact location. We don't know precisely where this is. It's probably somewhere in the Magdala region near the western bank of of Galilee, but we don't know exactly where. Wherever it is, there's a group that comes to meet him there. Now, we're used to seeing crowds just flock together to come see Jesus. Well, this group that comes out in verse 11 where, wherever it is, is the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees have rejected him. They've been upset with him. They, they got to the point where they wanted to kill him. And now they go from wherever they had been. They come out. And it, it, it's specifying for us that they, they made this travel. They made this journey just to get at Jesus. And they begin to, it says, argue. Um, it's, it's not really a hostile, um, negative, like yelling at him as much as a hostile testing of him. Like, prove it to us. I, I don't think you've got this right. You need to, to show me because, you know, I, I don't. And so they, they argue with him. And then Mark fills in the details. They were seeking a sign from heaven. Now, before we, before we get into it too much, is it reasonable that they would want this person who's claiming to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament, who's claiming to be the Messiah, the, the Son of God, the Promised One, is it reasonable that they would want some proof of that? Sure. I mean, if only he would have cast out demons or, or healed the sick or calmed the waves and the the storms and the sea, or maybe, maybe if he would raise someone from the dead, then, okay, I think you get the idea. They are not coming asking for a reasonable sign because they've already had tons and tons of examples, of proof that Jesus is the Messiah. And so they're not legitimately coming and asking for, hey, validate for us because we think that you're the Messiah, but we want to make sure they're coming and saying, yeah, yeah, there's, there's all of that, but you need to give us a sign in heaven, and, and we want proof. We want to know it. Go ahead. Yes, that, that's part of it, is they want to demand it. They want to be the ones in charge of when it comes and how it functions, and it has to meet their standard for proof. During our, our Sunday school classes um, a couple of weeks ago, we were, we were actually talking about, is evidence enough of a, an argument to, to prove the existence of God and, and to, to give some of those scientific evidences and, and the, the proofs that we might have? And, and really, this is a great example of what happens in connection with that. How much had the Pharisees been able to see? Everything. Jesus doesn't hide these miracles. They've had the reports. They've seen it happening. They should know. By now, they ought to. So why don't they? Why don't they understand it? Why don't they get it? I think that there's a, 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 a very good reason and a very good example that tells us what's going on. Um That example comes previously uh, in chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. There was a, a point at which the Pharisees saw him cast out demons, and they attributed the casting out of those demons to Satan, that he's doing this through the power of Satan instead of through the power of God. And and Jesus' response at that point was to let them know that that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That, that they are attributing to Satan what should be attributed to God. And ultimately, that they are um, guilty of an eternal sin. Now, I've, I've been asked a few times about, well, what is the unpardonable sin? How do I make sure that I don't do it? Things of that nature. Uh, I, I think that, that people get a little bit too caught up in that idea because what's going on with this example is that the Pharisees had seen everything. They had all of the proof. There was no reason that they shouldn't believe in Jesus. And rather than trust him, they made up a reason to reject him. And they, they come up with this idea that the power of God fully on display in front of them must be Satan instead of God, so that they don't have to follow Jesus, because they didn't want to submit to that. And so we have um, these individuals who have just completely rejected everything that they've seen, everything that they've heard, everything that they understand, all of the proofs, and now they show up again, and they're like, "Uh, prove it, prove it to us, show us a sign. Now, I started off with this, this section uh, saying, well, it's a, a reasonable question to expect some form of validation. You shouldn't just automatically follow anybody when they, they make a, a wild claim. And yet, what's already happened, they've had evidence after evidence after evidence, and they have rejected it. They have willfully rejected it. This is, this is something we've talked about from Romans chapter 1, of people who, who should know the truth, And yet, they, professing to be wise, become fools. And as a result, God turns them over to their own desires. God isn't going to force them to trust him, to follow him. He's going to allow them to make that decision for themselves. And yet, these Pharisees continue to choose to reject Jesus. Yes, sir. You look, you look through the Old Testament over and over and over again. Now, it would be really, really easy to point out the Pharisees and say, you fill-in-the-blank dum-dums. How about us? How often do we see, like I, like I asked already, how often do we see God at work and yet we miss it? What about other people? I I know most of you fairly well. I've had lots of opportunities. And yet, when it comes to this question of who is Jesus, who is Jesus to you? Do you accept him as he said he is? Or are you testing him and trying to figure out and like, well, if only he would, and then you have your own little... Uh, I'll. I'll follow Jesus if he does this or he, he does that or he What response do you have to Jesus? Well, these Pharisees they come and they're seeking a sign and they are testing him. They're trying him. They're they're tempting him is is what it says. Verse 12, sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, "Why does this generation seek a sign?" Now, I, I don't want to take the time right now, but I would, I would give you two passages that I want to encourage you to look up this afternoon and kind of dig into a little bit. The first of those is Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. It's the same situation that's going on. And in that one, Jesus is going to respond, I will give you one sign. The only sign that you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. That's Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. And so he tells them that they will get that sign. And then to be able to understand, well, what is the sign of Jonah? uh, Go back a couple of chapters in Matthew to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, in which Jesus basically says, here is the sign of of Jonah. Here's the proof that, that is beyond anything else. So there is absolutely no question, no issue, no one can miss it. His own resurrection. Jesus is going to die, and he knows that he's going to die. He knows that these Pharisees, maybe, maybe not this specific group, but the Pharisees are going to execute him. And he will be dead for three days. And then he will rise again. And that, beyond anything else is the greatest proof that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. And so, to this day, we still have that proof that Jesus rose from the dead. And there is, inside the Bible, a ton of evidence. In fact, Paul even makes the point of saying, if Jesus be not raised, your, your faith is in vain. It's worthless. There is a lot of external, outside the Bible, evidences as well to the resurrection of Christ. And so Jesus, even though he's like, I'm not, I'm not going to go out and do these signs just at your whim to prove to you things that you ought to already know, but he does let it be known, I will raise again. I will be resurrected. And that is the greatest proof that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he was fulfilling those things. Now, I took a lot more time on, on the feeding of the 4,000 than I intended. We're running a bit short, but I, I ask for your endurance for just a little bit because I know that this is a very large section, and we're taking a big chunk, but it all fits together. And it, it's a, a single large section that I think we need to, to go ahead and finish out and take a look at. Starting off in verse 13, he, he has this very brief interaction with them. And then they immediately get back into the boat. Now, it it doesn't tell us how long the argument was. It does give us the example that the Pharisees are probably there to, to have this extended debate, and they want to really argue these points out. And Jesus, sighing deeply in his spirit, says, "'Why do you seek a sign?' He had already given them plenty. "'Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation.'" And then, like I said, take a look at, at the Matthew passage and what's going on there as well. But verse 13: Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side, and they had forgotten to take bread. We've got ourselves a little bit of an issue, a little bit of a problem. They had just fed the 4,000, they had just seen Jesus provide plenty of food, and yet there were, there were seven baskets of leftovers. And yet now they're getting in the boat, and they have no bread. They, they, they have one, one loaf, one little loaf that was already in the boat. What does it say that the disciples did? The, okay, they were worried about it. Uh, but at the beginning of verse 14, they had forgotten to take bread. So he it, it, it almost throws the disciples under the bus and says, Hey, they should have, they ought to have. But they forgot to take bread. And so now they're in the boat, and they're going along. And Jesus was giving them orders. He's letting them know something. He wants them... See, Jesus is constantly teaching his disciples. He's constantly letting them know certain things that they need to know. And he's warning them, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, in the, in the pre-study, I had divided this up, and I, I gave it a variety of different names, um, the, the first one that I had, where did I put that? There we go. Was the feeding of the 4,000, that one's pretty simple. And then the Pharisees faint. They, they were acting like they wanted to know something, but the reality was they, they weren't. And here, I've got the fermentation warning. Watch out for the leaven. Watch out for that, that fermentation, that, that thing that's going to spoil and mess up. And Mark doesn't really tell us exactly what that is. What, what is the leaven of the Pharisees? Matthew is going to let us know that it's the teachings of the Pharisees. Luke is going to let us know that it's the the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. But in Mark, it doesn't specify what that leaven is other than something that's corruption. It's it's corrupting and messing up. But in this one, interestingly enough, Mark ties the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Pharisees the Herodians, or the leaven of Herod, together. And so they need to be on the lookout for the corruption that would be caused by both the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, as is normal, Jesus is trying to teach them something, trying to help them understand something, and what is their response? Um. <laughs> exactly. Now, it's really easy to pick on the disciples because they miss it. They don't get it. But I, I have to ask myself again, and I have to ask you, how often do you read through Scripture? Do you, do you see something? Do you listen to a sermon? Do you, you study something, and you miss it? And you completely miss the point. So I, I, I want to encourage you, don't be too hard on them. Recognize we deal with the same thing at times. But, but they're focused on the physical, side. They're focused on the bread. We don't have bread. And, and Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. So it, it's reasonable to think, well, they're like, oh, well, we need to not buy bread from the Pharisees, right? That's, that's what we need to avoid. It's not about the bread. And, and I, have, I have a story about that idea that, that I love to remember. When I, when I was in, uh, in camp ministry... I had an opportunity, I, I had ended up with a phrase, it's not about the vacuums. And, and there's a big story about that. Um, basically, there was an opportunity to improve the vacuum situation at the camp. And one person who technically had the authority to make the decision did it in a way that wasn't right. I'll, I'll put it that way. And, and I had an issue with that. But it wasn't about the vacuum. It was about the principle and the concept. Well, in this, Jesus is saying it's not about the bread. And, and they don't get it through their heads. It's not about the bread. It's not the physical side. Jesus is trying to teach them something way, way more important about the, the fermentation or the, the, the corruption that comes from the Pharisees and from Herod. And he wants them to understand, watch out for that. Be careful, be aware of that. And yet, their focus is on this physical, this bread. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no, no bread. Now, it, it doesn't, it's not real clear whether they missed what Jesus was saying, or they thought that Jesus was talking about stay away from the regular physical bread that the Pharisees are, have. It, it, it doesn't specify that, And you start reading the commentaries, and they go both directions. The point is, they're thinking physical, and Jesus is thinking spiritual. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, this is verse 17, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see? Don't you understand? do, Do you not comprehend? It's not about the bread. It's about something else. Having ears, do you not see? Having, or sorry, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? That's a, a, a phrase that he uses that's very reminiscent to uh, back in chapter 4, when we're dealing with all of the, the parables that Jesus is teaching them. And even in that point, he references back to Isaiah and a, a prophecy that Isaiah had made about people who should be able to see it. They should be able to get it. And they don't. They're blinded and they're deaf to the teaching that Jesus is trying to bring. And so he asks them, are you, and, and really, here's the almost scary part, are you like those Pharisees? The ones that they just finished talking to. The Pharisees who had seen what Jesus had done, who knew the miracles, who should have known this is the Messiah, are you missing the point, like they are? And yet, and I think this is this is beautiful. In verse seventeen, do you not yet see? That's that's the English rendering of it. The the idea is, ha, has it just not clicked yet? There's still there's still an expectation. Jesus still expects that they're going to get it, that they're going to figure it out, and that. Do you just not yet get it? He just told the the Pharisees, you're not getting a sign. You've rejected me. You have tried to kill me. You you have ascribed to Satan the things that I'm doing. Whereas here, these disciples, do do you not yet see it? Don't, Don't you understand? Or do you have a hardened heart? Now, Back in chapter 6, verse 52, they did have a hard heart. At this point, he's asking the question. And so throughout this whole episode, we've seen a little bit of growth with the disciples. They're not the ones who initiated, hey, get rid of the crowds so that we can go eat. But they don't get it yet. They, they haven't figured it out yet. The Pharisees have completely rejected Jesus the, the disciples, their focus isn't there. They don't understand. They, it, it's not clear. They don't get it yet. And so, I, I told you it's a beautiful thing. What is Jesus' response? He doesn't get rid of them. He doesn't throw them away. He doesn't say, forget it, I'm done, you missed it. He says, don't you remember? And he teaches and he, he takes some time to interact with them and help them understand. Do you not remember, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of brown, broken pieces did you pick up? And they respond. They say, well, well 12. 12 baskets. What about, what about just now? And, and this happens shortly after the feeding of the 4,000, when, when I had just the seven loaves and broke that. And how many baskets did you pick up then? Well, well, Seven he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Don't you get it? It's not about the bread. Through all of the teachings that Jesus does, he's trying to help the disciples to understand ultimately one major question. Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah. He is God himself, God incarnate, he is the Savior of the world. He is. And as we continue through Mark, and as you, you read through the Gospels, as you study God's Word, you're going to find out over and over and over again, more and more, who is Jesus? The disciples had seen it. They'd seen it on display, and yet they were missing it. They hadn't fully understand it. So what? What do we take away from this? I... I one one of the big ones that comes to my mind is, I'm so glad that Jesus is patient. At least patient with me. When I'm a bit slow and I don't get it, I don't understand. With the disciples, he takes the time to, to educate them, to help them. Now, number two of so what? Don't be slow. When Jesus teaches it, get it. Let it go through your thick skull. Maybe your skull's not as thick as mine, but... Do you not yet understand? That's what Jesus is asking them. He wants them to get it. He wants them to understand all of these things, these signs, these miracles, these wonders, these these things that Jesus was doing was so that they would know who he is. He wanted them to come to him. He wanted them to trust him. And he wanted that not just for the disciples or for the Jews, but for all people, which is why, as was mentioned, we have the feeding of the 5,000 and of the 4,000 so that we know this message is for everybody. They need to understand it. They need to get it. My my third takeaway, oftentimes it's not about whatever. We have this tendency to get so focused and fixated on the physical realm, on things going on, whether it's interactions with somebody else or the problems that we're facing or whatever. We get fixated on something, and so often it's not about that. It's about something spiritual. It's about something more. Someone has an argument with you about, well, I don't, I don't believe that God created the world in six literal days. That's something that we've been talking about in Sunday school. It's not really, most of the time, it's not about that argument. It's about I don't want to trust in a God who's in charge. I want to make up my own rules. I want to live by my own standards. Sometimes you'll have someone who's angry and upset and having a a bad day. And, well, my my tire was flat this morning. Well, it's actually that they've not dedicated their lives to following the Lord and doing things his way. And so their attitudes are not right. And their, their focus is on physical things and not spiritual things and not on what it ought to be, or, or whatever else it might be. Uh, those are just a couple of examples. But we get so fixated on something that we completely miss the bigger picture. We miss what God wants us to understand. So we need to watch out that we are not rejecting what Jesus has made abundantly clear for us and what he wants us to understand. So I want to I encourage you, I want to challenge you, I mentioned it a couple of times as we went through. Who is Jesus to you? Do you recognize him for who he is? For who he said he is? Do you trust him as Lord and Savior? Or do you just focus on your next meal, my next loaf of bread, or my next little fish or fishing trip, or whatever the physical things might be? Or are you allowing him to be who he said he is? and to trust him in that, to learn of him, to follow him. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you love us enough to give us the gospels so that we can understand who Jesus is, what he's done. Lord, we recognize that he is the Messiah, the Savior, the one who came to be the payment for not only my sins, but the sins of the whole world. Lord, thank you that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus. May we trust him as he is, not how we want to make him out to be, but who he is. May we not get so tied up in the physical things, and the other stuff, in the bread, that we neglect the spiritual realm of what you really want us to focus on. Lord, help us to keep our focus on you and what you desire.